give us some nice artwork tonight. This is a picture from the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam of an old woman reading her Bible, uh, painted around 1630 uh, by a chap called Gerrit Du, who was a student of Rembrandt. And so this is kind of characteristic of the arts of um, the 15 and 1600s, where suddenly people were able to read the Bible for themselves for the first time. And no longer was the Bible restricted to scholars and churchmen, but the Bible suddenly became something which belonged to the everyday person. Thank you very much, Jim. And the everyday person then could pick up their Bible and read it, and then that started to feature in the artwork of what's known as the Reformation. So I just thought that was a nice picture to add, um, just to, to think about reading the Bible. But just to begin then, um, what I want to do over the next series of however many weeks, eight to ten weeks, I say, um, not one after the other, but spread over the, the course of a, a few months or so, what I want to do is look at some of the key teachings of the Bible, some of the things that we really should believe. Because what we do on, on Sunday mornings when we come together is we read through the Bible and we teach what the Bible says from different passages in the Bible, and that's really good and really important. The problem is that if you only do that, then sometimes it's like looking at little bits of the jigsaw puzzle and you don't see how the whole thing fits together sometimes. And I would like to think that obviously in, on Sunday mornings we do try to fit things together as we go through. But sometimes it's helpful just to take a step back and look at some of the, the big things that we believe as Christians and think, so what do we actually believe? What does the Bible actually say about this? Um, and so as we start to put together things in a systematic way, looking at Christian doctrine or Christian teaching, uh, this can be referred to as what some people call as systematic theology. And that's what we're going to do. And there are several topics that um, such a study covers. Um, if my mouse is working... There we go. It covers various different things like the doctrine of scripture that we're going to look at tonight, the doctrine of God, which and I've given all the technical names beside it. I'm not going to read all of those out. The doctrine of God, the doctrine of God, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Holy Spirit, humanity, who are we as human beings, as God's creatures? What, are, what about salvation? What are we saved from? What is salvation? What does it do for us? and future things. What does the Bible say about how it's all going to wind up in the end? And these are the kind of core areas that systematic theology actually looks at. And so what I want to do over the course of these uh, sessions is just to think about each of these topics in turn and to think about what we should believe as Christians. Now, I'm going to try and be brief, and I'm going to try and focus only on the things that we actually generally agree on as Christians, and I'm going to try and steer away from anything that we might find a bit contentious or that we might disagree on. Occasionally, though, if I do touch on things that it's okay to disagree on, I'll flag it for you and say, yeah, if you disagree with me, that's fine. But generally, I'm trying to stick with the things that we actually do agree on as Christians. So what we're doing then, as I said, it's described using various different terms. You can call it Christian doctrine. You can call it systematic theology because it tries to put everything together in a systematic way, pulling from across the Bible. Or um, some older writers refer to it as dogmatic theology. But we're, we're going to stick to the idea of systematic theology. And as we have said, it covers various different topics that we're going to look at. And there's various different points at which we could start. Obviously, because it's theology, theology means the study of God, we could start with the study of God and say, well, let's start thinking about God. Who is he? Um, uh, and what is our relationship to him? But I think it's helpful to take a step back and think, well, how do we know anything about God at all? How do we know who God is? 
or who we are in relation to him? And to answer that question, then we need to start thinking about how God reveals himself. And this is the doctrine of revelation. Revelation, big word, simply just means revealing. It's God revealing himself to us in different ways. And we need to start thinking about that because if we are going to start to put together a systematic way of thinking about what we believe as Christians and what we know about God, then we need to think about how we know anything about God at all. Now, we could start to reflect on who God is. We could look at the world around us and see how beautiful the world is and say, well, actually, that must tell us something about the creator, that he's a God of beauty and greatness and majesty. We could start to think about the fact that every effect in the world has a cause. You know, if I push someone, then I am the cause of their effect, which is falling over. So there's all these cause and effects. And we see we look at the world around us and we say, well, this must have had a cause. And Aristotle, the Greek philosopher long ago, he thought about that and he said, well, there must have been a first cause of the universe. There must have been some God-type figure. And various different people down through the ages have used their thinking, have looked at the world around them and said, well, actually, we can know something about the gods that created it all. And these are genuine clues to who God is. The problem with them is that they all fall short. They don't tell us enough about God that we really need. But this whole process of revelation, God revealing himself to us, is encapsulated wonderfully in Psalm 19, which I've got here on the slides. And if you want to read it in your Bible, that's fine as well. But in Psalm 19, David, he's writing and he's describing for us how God has revealed himself in different ways. And he begins by saying, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. And of course, he acknowledges they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet, their voice goes into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world's. And the psalmist goes on then to the end of verse 6, thinking about the sun going across the sky. And in everything that we look at in the world around us, we can actually see the character of God as it's revealed to us. It's hard not to look up at the night sky. And if it's a nice clear sky and you see the stars and sometimes you see the planets and you think to yourself, the God that created all of this must be majestic. He must be glorious and wonderful. And the psalmist here is reflecting on things like that and saying, yes, that's exactly right. God is speaking to us through these things. He's revealing himself through these things and he's telling us something about himself. And and he says that the creation pours forth speech, even though he says it, it uses no words. It's not like we actually hear audible words from creation saying, look at the God who created all this. We don't hear words, but nevertheless, it's It's a visual message to us that we actually see. And he says that their voice has gone out into all the earth. So there's no part of the world which doesn't have some access to this way in which God has revealed himself. So that anybody in any part of the world can look at the creation around them and actually deduce something about who God must be. And so if they're standing in front of their idol that's made out of wood, then they ought to be able to look up in the sky and see everything that's been made and say, actually, no, this idol that I'm worshipping isn't the true God. And they should start to seek after the one true God. 
But as wonderful as that revelation is, it's inadequate because it doesn't tell us everything that we need to know about God. And that's where David goes on in in verse 7 and he talks about an even greater revelation from God. He says then, jumping from God's general revelation in creation to God's revelation in his word. And he says in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. And the psalmist then goes on and asks God to actually help him to be faithful to this revelation. But what we see here in these verses is this contrast between the way that God reveals himself in general through creation and the way in which he reveals himself to his instruction. Because the thing is, when we look at the world around us, it doesn't tell us about how God wants us to react to him. It doesn't tell us how we should live. It doesn't tell us how we can have a relationship with God. It doesn't tell us any of those things. For that, we need God's instruction. And this is what David rejoices in here. He says in verse 7, he rejoices in the law or the instruction of God. And it's perfect. It refreshes the soul. He says it makes wise the simple. And so whoever we are, no matter how little we actually know, It's this instruction from God that actually is going to rescue us. And so as he comes towards the end of his psalm, he says that these words then, they're more precious than gold. And that's how important the word of God actually is. More precious than gold, sweeter than anything else that you could actually taste. So what David's describing here in these two parts of the psalm are two types of revelation. We refer to these as general revelation and special revelation. Um, Special revelation, it can take various different forms. In the past, God has appeared to people in dreams and visions and signs and wonders and so on. But God's special revelation takes specific form in his written word. And that's what we want to focus on today. You see, when God led Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, he brought them as a, as a people group to Mount Sinai where he made them into a nation, where he gave them a charter as a people and made them his holy people. And what happened there at Mount Sinai was significant in that God didn't just appear to them in signs and wonders, but God appeared to them by giving them his words And as as Moses brings them through the desert and eventually they arrive at the far side of the Jordan before they cross over the Jordan River to invade Jericho and set up their their home in the promised land, Moses, he's not going to cross over. And he reflects back on all that's happened. And he reminds them in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 5 about the significance of the fact that God has spoken to them. He says, see, I have taught you decrees And laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you're entering to take possession of it. 
Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I um, as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? And so what marks Israel out is really significant and special is the fact that God has spoken to them. He's given them in written form his instructions as to how they are to live as his people and how to have a relationship with him. Following on from that, as the history of the nation of Israel progressed, the people of Israel wandered away from God. And what God did then is he sent prophets to them. And these prophets were God's mouthpieces where God would speak to them, sometimes in visions and dreams that would always give them a message so that they would go to the kings, they would go to the people and say, listen, you need to start coming back to this book that's been given to you. And they were calling people back again and again to the word of God and saying, you're not being faithful to the message that God has given to you. And as people listened to the message of the prophets, the prophets would warn them about coming judgment if they didn't repent. They would promise them that there'd be a time of restoration and the the people sometimes the prophets themselves sometimes the disciples of these prophets would take what the prophets had said they would put it down in writing and preserve it as a reminder for future generations of what God had said to them and they recognized that this wasn't just a way of them recording revelation but it was revelation in itself It was God speaking in this written form as well and it wasn't just prophets it was people like David uh, and they were recognized as having this prophetic gift, Solomon too. And David, as we've read in this Psalm, Psalm 19, you know, he's got this prophetic gift where there's this recognition that when he speaks and when he writes these songs for people to sing in their temple worship, these are not just his words, but they're actually given to him by God. And so over time then, the Israelites began to gather together this collection of books in which they recognized God was speaking to them and this was God's message to them. And thus, this was an absolutely authoritative set of books. And in technical terms then, we would say that these books, or we could refer to it as a single book if we want to think about it as, as a collective whole, but these books that were given were inspired And that's the term that we want to think about next. See, sometimes when people think about this word inspired, sometimes they just think, you know, it just means it's amazing. And you'd see a beautiful piece of art, you'll see, uh, listen to a great piece of music, and you'll say, wow, that is inspired. And you just mean it's really good, It's, it's amazing. But when we refer to the Bible as being inspired, we mean something more than that. We mean literally that God has breathed into it Inspire is kind of an old word. We don't use it very much. We do use other related words like respire, respiration. If we respire, it means we're breathing. If we expire, it means we breathe out. Inspire just means to breathe into something. And in older translations of 2 Timothy 3.16, you'll see that word where it says that all scripture is inspired, is given by inspiration of God. God breathes into it. But I think the NIV is really clear here. And where Paul's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, and he says that all scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Paul's referring to the Old Testament writings here, because obviously at the time that he's writing, uh, the New Testament hasn't been completed yet. It's still in the process of uh, coming together. So he's thinking about the Old Testament scriptures, um, 
It will apply to the New Testament, as we'll see very shortly. But he's thinking at this stage about how the writings that God had given, the special revelation, was no ordinary set of books, but these scriptures were God-breathed. But we need to think about what that means when we say that scripture is God-breathed, because at first glance, people get the impression that if it's God-breathed, then God must have dictated it somehow. That the prophets did nothing more than just listen to what God was saying, and then they, they, they just wrote it down. So you, you know, sometimes people imagine that God appeared to Isaiah maybe uh, one time at night and said, Isaiah, I want you to write this down. And he says, behold the virgin. And Isaiah gets his pen and writes, behold the virgin. Shall conceive, shall conceive, and bear a son, and bear a son, and so, and so on and so forth. And sometimes people imagine that that's the way that um, the process of inspiration was actually conducted. But not at all, that's not how it worked. Certainly there may have been passages of scripture that did work like that. Certainly the Ten Commandments and other those instructions from God were given directly from the hand of God. Doubtless other parts of the first five books given to Moses, God instructed parts of those directly. But for the vast majority of the Bible, the way in which God breathes out his word is not a way that overrides the human authors, but works through the human authors. That people's personalities and styles come through as you read their writings. And you can see the differences in different books of the Bible and how the different authors put it together. So the the human author's personality and style isn't actually eradicated, and yet nevertheless God speaks, God breathes through them exactly what he wants them to say. And so these aren't working against each other, they're both absolutely true that People write what they want, oftentimes knowing that they're being guided by God, and God gets exactly what he wants, and there's no conflict between the two. And that's actually quite instructive for how God's sovereignty and human freedom actually work together. Neither actually overrides each other, they work together. And so for that reason then, oftentimes when we're preaching here at Bensham, I can say, for example, you know, Paul says in such and such a passage, And in the next breath say that actually, you know, God says to us in his word. And those two are both exactly true. It's not one's true and one's not true. They're both true. Paul speaks, God speaks. Moses speaks, God speaks. And this is the way that scripture actually functions. It's important to notice that Paul says that all scripture is God-breathed. This means that we can't just pick and choose parts of the Bible to actually believe Because there are parts of the Bible that make us really uncomfortable. That's simply the way of it. Um, There's parts of the Psalms, for example, still make me uneasy. I I wouldn't give them out for us to sing because it would make everybody um, a bit uncomfortable. And so we read parts of the Bible like that, and some writers will say, actually, those bits of the Bible, they're not inspired by God. They're not God-breathed, so we can discard those bits But Paul challenges us here and he says, no, actually all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for actually doing everything that you need to do as God's people. And so if we then try and say that certain parts are inspired and certain parts aren't, then actually what we're doing is we're setting ourselves up as an authority over the text and we're saying that we get to decide what's God-breathed and what's not God-breathed and we just can't do that. Paul's clear, all scripture is God-breathed. And we thus need to actually pay attention to all of scripture. And so for that reason, it's what we insist on as the full or the plenary inspiration of the Bible is completely inspired and not just parts of it. So um, because then we believe that scripture is 
breathed out by God and God's word actually to us, then we have to submit to it as God's message to us. When we read the Bible, we are hearing the voice of our God speaking to us. And we have got no other choice but to listen to our God and to do what he says to us in his word. And this then is one of the fundamental principles of the 16th century Reformation. During the 1500s, there was a movement across Europe which began to recognize that scripture was the highest authority that we could actually have. And it was a return to the Bible. And that has to be understood quite carefully because when they were saying that scripture is our highest authority, they were not saying that scripture was our only authority. I think all of us would recognize there's various different authorities in our life. That's true. So if you go down the line of saying that scripture is our only authority and abandon all other sources of authority, then you're going down a really dangerous path. So what we believe when we say that scripture is our highest authority is that there are other authorities which are instructive to us, but they never supersede scripture. So over the centuries, uh, God's people have got together in, in church councils and have written creeds, for example, where they've, they've thrashed out exactly what it means to believe in God as a trinity, exactly what it means to believe as Jesus Christ, as fully human and fully God. And they've thrashed these things out and given them to us as a way of understanding scripture. These things have authority over us but not the same authority of scripture. They're under scripture because they point to scripture. This then stands in contrast to what Roman Catholics believe about scripture. Uh, and I'm not just talking about Roman Catholics as a way of having a go at Roman Catholics. It's because the Roman Catholic tradition is a long and venerable tradition, and we need to think about it where we disagree with that, because that disagreement must be a principled and a conscious decision to say, actually, no, we stand fully on the word of God itself. And the Roman Catholic Church then, it says that there are two equal authorities. There's the authority of church tradition, what the church has believed down through history, and what various popes and church councils have said, and there's the authority of scripture, and they stand side by side. But for the Protestant, um, they stand against that and say that actually scripture alone is the highest authority. But it's, it's not just in the context of the church that we need to recognize that scripture is our highest authority. It's in every aspect of our lives as well. Because in every aspect of our lives, we're challenged to, to accept other authorities and we need to weigh all of those other authorities against scripture. So government will tell us to do things through the legitimate authority. But we always need to think about, does this command actually go against the highest authority, go against scripture? Uh, we need to submit ourselves to cultural trends, whether that's trends about gender or sexuality. We need to submit ourselves in every aspect of our lives and every aspect of our thinking to the authority of Scripture so that whatever's going on in broader culture, we are a people who are shaped by the authority of the Word of God itself. And related to this is the idea that Scripture is inerrant. Um, the idea that scripture has no errors in it. If scripture speaks to authoritatively to us as God's breathed out word to us, then it means that it does so without making any errors. Because if God is truthful, then how could he breathe out anything to us which has error in it? 
But we have to be quite careful when we think about what inerrancy means. We have to say that inerrancy means that scripture is without error in all that it affirms in the original writings. And it's helpful to think about what exactly that means. It's true, in, it's inerrant in all that it affirms, which means that there are some things recorded in scripture which are wrong. No, you're shocked and you're, you're surprised. You say, Andrew, what do you mean? What I mean is that there's some things, like in the book of Job, for example, where people say things which are wrong. So you read the book of Job, and if you know the story, what happens in Job is there's this man, Job, and he is a very good person, and God is pleased with his life, and Satan comes along and challenges God to actually bring suffering into his life and sees whether or not Job will actually curse God. And after all these bad things start to happen to Job, all of Job's friends come along and they start saying all these things to him, basically along the lines of, Job, you know, you must have done something wrong for all these bad things to have happened to you. And so his friend Eliphaz comes along in Job chapter 4 and verse 7 and says, Consider now, Job, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? In one sense, you know, that's true. Ultimately, the, the righteous are never going to be destroyed. But in the sense that Eliphaz means it, it's just plain wrong. Because we do know that sometimes the righteous are destroyed. We do know that sometimes the innocent get into trouble and die. And so in that sense, Eliphaz is just plain wrong. And so we look at a, a part of scripture like that and we say, well, actually, you know, we recognize that that is wrong. Because scripture is not affirming that. It's not teaching that. And to understand what the book teaches, you've got to look at the bigger picture of the book and get to the end of the book where actually God comes along and says, no, actually, all of you guys, you've got it wrong. It wasn't because Job was wicked that I've punished him. You just can't understand my purposes. And so when we interpret the Bible uh, and think about this doctrine of inerrancy, how it's got no errors in it, we've got to understand what the Bible is teaching in order to say what the Bible is teaching contains no errors. It's also important to say that not only is it inerrant in all that it affirms, but it's inerrant in the original writings. And that basically means that there might be errors in your translation. There might be errors in copying. Now, by and large, they're not significant. But it's just important to say that it's the scriptures, as God gave them, gave them in the, uh, originally, are without any errors because they are breathed out by him. And that's why then we ought to to respect the work of scholars uh, and to, as much as we're able to ourselves, think about what the original text says. Look at the original languages and, and think about the original manuscripts to think about what was it that God actually said. But that's just by the way. It's also important to note that when we say that scripture is inerrant, that does not mean that it always uses scientific precision in everything that it says. If it uses round numbers, that's not an error. If it um, uses figures of speech, like the sun rising and setting, we know that's not scientifically true. It's the earth rotating. The sun doesn't rise or set. But it's just a way of speaking. And it uses various other ways of speaking. They're not errors, but they're not scientifically precise. And again, when we turn to the gospel accounts of the Lord Jesus and look at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and uh, John as well, um, when we look at those accounts, very often we discover that they're not written in chronological order. And we compare them and say, well, actually, this thing happens here and it happens in a different order in the other gospel. And again, that's not an error. It's just that very often the gospel writers put things in, in topical order. They'll put a group of teaching together and then a group of miracles together. And they're not trying to say that one thing happened in this particular order. They're just recording these things. And again, these are not errors. 
And so you say to me, Andrew, if you're having to make all of these qualifications and caveats and say, actually, it's qualified in all of these ways, is there, is there any sense then in, in which we need to affirm that Scripture is without error? Well, yes, I do think it's important precisely because it means that Scripture is to be entirely trusted. Scripture never misleads us. It never deceives us. It's God's perfect word. And it guides us to a true knowledge of God in everything that it teaches us. So then, if we affirm that God reveals himself through scripture, then we have to say that this is authoritative and it's without error. But, marching swiftly on, and don't worry, there's not too much left, probably another five or ten minutes. Um, if we say that scripture is authoritative and without error, that's all very good. But, many people then come along and say, well, the Bible isn't clear. So many different interpretations of the Bible. What good is it to say that it's an authoritative book if nobody can actually agree on what it says? Take, for example, disagreements over music in church services. There are some very fine Christians who say that we shouldn't use musical instruments in church services because you never find that in the New Testament. And there are some other equally fine Christians and they come along and say, well, actually, you know, you've got musical instruments in the Old Testament, so why not use them? It's there. You've got all of this disagreement and then you're left asking the question, well, what good is it to say that the text is authoritative and without error if nobody can actually agree what to do with it? And that's where the Roman Catholic tradition comes along and they say, well, that's why you need an authoritative church after all, because we're going to tell you exactly what it means. Uh, but at that point, then we just realize that the, the Roman Catholic response is just to introduce another layer of complexity. They're not introducing a way of solving the problems, they're just introducing something else which you've got to interpret and another layer of confusion. And so I don't think that works. And so we need to think about what scripture actually says for itself. I've got a couple of verses there. Um, we'll look at Psalm 119, for example. In verse 105 it says, to God, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. So clearly it helps us to understand things. It enlightens us. Verse 130, it says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And so you look at the rest of the Psalm 119, and clearly the psalmist understands that the word of God isn't something which is there to confuse us and befuddle us. It's there to actually make life clear for us and to make our path clear and to understand things better. At the same time, Paul, um, or sorry, Peter, he writes in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16 about Paul's letters, and he says that Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Now, just pausing there for a minute, you'll notice that Peter refers to the other scriptures along with Paul's writings. So clearly at this stage, Peter is recognizing Paul's writings not as just any other writings, he's recognized them as scripture. Part of the same scripture that he says is, that Paul writes is God breathed in 2 Timothy 3. Uh, so very early on in the writing of the New Testament writings, they're recognized as scripture. And I'm going to come back to that. But um, coming back to the point that I'm trying to make here, Peter recognizes that some of the things that Paul says are actually really difficult to understand. And that proves a bit of comfort for us. So what do we do then? Some parts of scripture says that the Bible's really clear and enlightens us. Other parts of scripture says that there's parts of scripture that are really difficult. Well, I think it's really a matter of recognizing that there are parts of the Bible that are clear and there are parts that are a bit more difficult to understand. And we need to think then, well, why did God give us his word? Why did God speak to us? 
And the fundamental purpose that God gave us his word is because he wants to have a relationship with us. And in that purpose, it cannot fail. And so we've got to say then that scripture is clear in its central message. And so Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15 and says to him from infancy, you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so he's saying that, Timothy, even when you were a little boy, you were able to understand enough of the scriptures to bring you to a saving knowledge of God. And the holy scriptures were able to be understood by you, even then, sufficiently and clearly in order to know God and to know salvation through Jesus Christ. And this is the thing. When we look at the Bible, we ought not to exacerbate the things that are difficult to, or magnify the things that are difficult to understand because we see very clearly the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us through his death on the cross. He rose from the dead and through the risen saviour we can have a relationship with God and have our sins forgiven. This much is clear and it doesn't require an advanced degree in interpretation. And so the reformers in the in the 16th century, they referred to what was known as the perspicuity, the clarity of scripture as a way of reacting against the Roman church and saying, actually, you don't need this layer of church tradition and volumes of interpretation. The ordinary believer can pick up their Bible, like that old woman in, in Garrett Doerr's painting, and read it and understand it and come to a saving knowledge of God. And of course, the reformers weren't trying to say that, you know, we never need to seek wisdom and advice from other people, that they encouraged people to read the Bible together in community. Now, that's something that we should do together. We read the Bible together as Christians. And so it's not an individualistic approach to Scripture, but it still means that Scripture is clear. And so even though there might be disagreement over details, we ought to recognize that this book is indeed a lamp for our feet and a light on our path in its central message to us. So, there's one last issue that I want to touch on before I finish, and that's the issue of how we actually know then what books form part of the Bible. It's very well to say that we trust this authoritative book that speaks to us, but how do we know what's, what's supposed to be in the Bible? I had a friend say to me the other day, well, what about the secret gospel of Mark that alleges some shady details of Jesus? Did the church try and suppress it so that this information didn't get out? And so some political decision came along you know, in the 300s and they decided at the Council of Nicaea that they were going to say what books were in the Bible and what books weren't in the Bible. Well, frankly, that's not true. That just never happened. And there were a lot of books written later centuries that purported to be gospels, but they simply were never accepted by um, other believers. The idea that there was a decision made at one point in time as to what books to include and what books to exclude is simply not true. It never happened. And so it was a process over a period of time of believers across the world recognizing what God had actually said to them. And while there was a bit of dispute about some books like Hebrews and Revelation, which took a little bit longer to actually agree on, even though they're agreed on now, um, there was widespread agreement about what books actually formed part of the New Testament. And I think it's helpful to think about what the Lord Jesus says in, in John chapter 10, verse 4, where he says that his sheep hear his voice and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. 
That's true in our personal lives. We follow the Lord Jesus because we recognize his voice. But it was also true in the early church as they read scripture, read books that were written, and recognized in them the voice of the risen Jesus and recognized that actually this was God speaking to them. And so they recognized that books that were written by apostles and those endorsed by apostles contained the words that God wanted to communicate to them. And so it was a process over time of not defining what to include and exclude, but recognizing what God had actually given. As for the Old Testament books, there remained a bit of dispute up until the 1500s, and basically at the Reformation there became a bit of a crisis. And there's a set of books known as the Apocrypha that were written between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. And most of those books are historical books looking at what happened at the events between the Old and the New Testaments. The Jews did not treat these books on the same level as scripture, and the first Christians did not treat them on the same level of scripture. But they did treat them as good and wise books that were helpful for training in godliness. It wasn't until 1546 at the Council of Trent in, in Italy that the Roman Catholics got together and they decided that they were going to canonize and say that these books were actually a part of scripture. And so I've got a little Roman Catholic Bible here. And if you have a look at that little Roman Catholic Bible, you'll discover there's a set of extra books in there that aren't in your Protestant Bible. But the Protestant position simply follows that of the Jewish tradition and of the earliest Christians in recognizing that these books, they might be useful, and indeed they are useful, but they are not part of the canon of scripture. And so as we reflect on the books that form part of our Bible, we recognize that these were never actually defined by some political decision, but it was believers over time recognizing what God had given to them, and it was an organic process of actually bringing it together so that what we have is not the result of a decision of some group of people, but is what God did through his Holy Spirit and leading his people to recognize what he had given down through the, the first century. Now, as I wrap up then, um, it's helpful then to just think about how this actually applies to our lives and to think about how it ought to make a difference to us. Firstly, if scripture is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice, then we really ought to saturate ourselves with scripture so that our thinking, both consciously and unconsciously, is guided by scripture. And the best way of doing that is simply to read the Bible. And I know that last week Jim was exhorting us all to, to go on a yearly reading, a year's reading plan where we just read through the Bible. And you only need to read about three or four chapters a day to actually get through the entire Bible in a year. Um, the plan that Jim's got is a really useful one. There's many others available. And I want to encourage us to actually do that if we're able, um, to just read through Bible. And if we can't manage three or four chapters, that's fine. There's nothing legalistic about it. But do seek to just immerse yourself in Scripture because this is what God has given to us to communicate with us. Secondly, I would say that given that the fundamental message of the Bible is clear, don't be afraid of Scripture. Sometimes people will stay away from difficult books. They're like, I'll never be able to understand that. That's too difficult, too complicated. And what I would say is actually that the message of the Bible is fundamentally clear and that the Holy Spirit does enable us to understand what God has given to us. Um, so don't shy away from the Bible thinking that it's or parts of it are just for experts or scholars because the Bible is given to God's people. It's given to you and me that we might understand it. Thirdly, I would say that we ought to trust the Bible. 
In a world of ambiguity and uncertainty, we wonder, you know, where do we turn for confidence and absolute certainty? And we can turn to scripture. Um, we can place our full confidence in this because we know it in this. God has spoken to us. And when we read it, we hear the voice of our God and we can trust it completely. Um, the approach that I've taken to the authority of Scripture here and the trustworthiness of Scripture is one where I reflect in the character of God and say that if this is who God is and if he has spoken to us, then this must of necessity be the character of this book. But there's many other approaches which look at how the Bible actually matches to historical events and, and other types of evidence as well, and that's a valid approach. And if you want uh, information about that, I'm happy to recommend books. But my final point would be that we ought to give thanks to God for scripture. Because here our God has condescended to speak to us in human words. Without it, we would not know what God wants from us. We would not know what God is like. We would not know our final destiny. But with it, God has opened up our understanding to know who we are. To know the depth of his love for us. And to know all he is going to do for us. And so there isn't a day that goes by that we shouldn't thank God for giving us this book so that we can know him and have communion with him. So those are just a few thoughts in scripture. And I'm going to close in prayer and then we'll have some refreshments. Gracious Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us. Deepen then our confidence in your word. Deepen our love for your word so that 